Welcome to Soaring the Sky, Glider Pilots Podcast. My name is Chuck. I am your host. Today we join Keith Chandler, a glider pilot and air cadet instructor in the United Kingdom. Keith has also instructed students with the British Gliding Association and has over 2,500 launches with over 1,200 hours of flying. Keith has flown gliders all over the globe, from flying in the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France to soaring over the Anjuro River in Kenya, Africa. Join us now to hear Keith's journey. Keith Chandler, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Well, very good. Thank you, Chuck. Yeah, very good. Very good indeed. So when did your adventure in aviation get started? Well, there's a question. Uh, just to put some context to this, I'm 61 years old. So when I was uh, 13, I joined the air cadets in this country. Uh, I heard one of your previous podcasters, Nick Anderson, talking about the air cadets, which is what caused me to ping you that email. I joined the air cadets because I was in, involved in the squadron activities at, at the school and my father had flown sea fires during the war that's the ocean going version on an aircraft carrier of the spitfire and he was quite enthusiastic about me joining the air cadets although strangely as is quite often the case with the gentlemen of that era he didn't talk much about his flying i found out more about his flying after he passed away when i found his memoirs but i was in the air cadets and as all things you have a best pal and that best pal and I were called to see the commanding officer and he said I've got a gliding course here and a flying scholarship course well one's powered and one's gliding and we both looked at him a bit blankly and he said who wants to do which and as 16 year old student actually answered the question he said right I'm going to decide on a toss of a coin and he did so and he said right Chandler you're going gliding so in 1974 I went on a gliding course at an old Royal Air Force gliding site up in Norfolk that's in East Anglia that's the bit that sticks out on the right hand side of the UK and I was there for a week and I flew the same aircraft that Nick flew which was the T-31s that's the one where you sit one behind the other with no canopy and you're out in the fresh air and some in the side by side which was the Slingsby T-21 and I went solo that week and got my wings proudly showing them on my chest and came back and saw the squadron commanding officer and said I like that I want to do some more and he said well go to the gliding squadron that is closest to where we are which is another Royal Air Force base an old one that's closed in fact it's the most complete Battle of Britain Royal Air Force base in the country now and it's called RAF Kenley and there was a gliding squadron there the 615 volunteer gliding squadron in fact at the time they were called volunteer gliding schools and I get mixed up now between them uh, and I joined there at the lowest of the low doing all the jobs that you have to do to make a gliding environment work much the same as you do in a club so you learn to winch and you learn to drive and retrieve the gliders and clean up and make the tea for the duty pilot but we had a fantastic amount of fun 16 year olds just generally enjoying ourselves driving Land Rovers before we could drive on the road. And of course, the end result of that is that you build up a massive squadron of youngsters, all enthusiastic to be there. It doesn't really matter what the weather's doing. And you get your flying at the end of the day. And over a period of time, you go through the advanced training process. And then you progress even further in the RAF system for gliding, 
which is based around the RAF flying training for their uh, fighter pilots. But you progress on and you end up doing more solos and getting more proficient at landing where you're supposed to. It's all at the end of the day after you've been helping other squadron cadets coming to learn to fly, getting their air experience. And by 1977, I'd amassed 300 launches. And then I was checked out to allow me to carry passengers. Of course, once you're passenger carrying, your launch rate increases dramatically because you're now useful. You're now really on the staff. You're producing the goods. And they are at 19 years old, sitting next to a 13-year-old cadet, showing them the rudimentary pitch, roll and yaw of, of gliding. And, and you start to learn to become an instructor. And obviously, the more efficient you are, the more flying you get. So your ability to spot land, that improves dramatically. And then a year later, so another sort of 500 launches later, I got sent on my initial instructor's course. And then you're sent away back to the RAF site where you're then taught how to instruct. And of course, that becomes a challenge because you've then got to be able to fly the aircraft properly and you've got to be able to talk at the same time. So the aircraft does what you're saying it's doing when it's doing it. And you're not demonstrating anything to the cadet that you don't want them to do and pick up bad habits. As a junior instructor, you then obviously end up being checked on a on a fairly regular basis. I think it's about every three months. We didn't know much about what was going on in the private sector, in the civilian gliding world. Uh, I, I went on holiday with my parents to Florida and there was a gliding site at Zebring in the middle of Florida. There's a big lake, I think. Lake Okeechobee, is it? And uh, I flew there in 1978 in a K-13 and a K-6, and I thought that were real hot ships. And obviously, I just carried on flying within the air cadets. Teach, and my instructor ability improved. And the more launches you get, 1982, they sent me on a senior instructor's course. And, and once you're on that, you're then teaching beyond the rudiments of pitch, roll, and yaw, and you're getting seriously into landing profiles and launching and all the stuff that goes with it and you're also allowed to teach the junior staff and do some checks on them uh so i've been at the gliding school eight years by now and i was invited to attempt for a, a volunteer reservist commission within the royal air force and become a volunteer officer in the royal air force obviously still carrying out my day job which at the time was a building surveyor for a building contractor and the local authority so i continued in the management of the volunteer gliding squadron and just kept going there most weekends and it becomes a habit as well as anything else and i did all the jobs that are available in that environment you you do things like that they've got one called the adjutant which is the admin guy and then you've got the supply officer who's making sure that all the consumable kits there the cables and the weak links and the parachutes and all that sort of stuff and then you get the engineering officer eventually progressing to that best job on the airfield that there ever will be which is the chief instructor uh, and in the meantime of course i've been away and done my senior supervisors course because the RAF are really hot on supervision and at that stage you're allowed to send first solos when you're a senior uh, supervisor because up to that stage all your um training you eventually hand over your student to a checking instructor but when you get to what the RAF call a category then you can send your first solo now that is a serious buzz when you start sending 
16-year-old youngsters on their first ever solo. As you well know, once you're up there, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what did that feel like when you sent your first student off to to their solo? I mean, that must be a lot of them, a lot going yeah. on. That's a lot going on. Yeah, but I mean, you know full well that he's ready because when you're given your permission to send first solos, I remember the the uh, central flying school instructor from the Royal Air Force just turned around to me and just as I walked out of his door after he shook my hand and he said, remember, Keith, if there's any doubt, there's no doubt and it's not your child. So you you were always sure that your student was going to make it round. But that didn't stop the fact that you stood there nervously at the launch point, watching him release at the top of the launch and making sure that, that you were sort of willing him round mentally to turn where you told him to turn and fly where you wanted him to fly and set himself up on a decent approach. It is a hell of a buzz, though, when you get to him and the biggest smile ever on that child's face. And, of course, they're doing it before they could even drive a car in this country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, same here. Yeah. So I'd had a little bit of a taste of flying outside the Air Cadets and, and then I made a point of going on a, a gliding holiday, which was sort of tacked into another holiday that my wife and I, because I got married by then, were having with her relatives in Kenya in Africa. And uh, there was a gliding site, the Lake Njoro, and I went there and I flew, strangely enough, a T-21, the side-by-side glider that I'd started in. And uh, the guy sitting next to me, it was a, an airstrip cut in a maize field. So the, the airstrip was nice and flat, but it had eight-foot-high walls all around it of this maize crop. And uh, he said, I need to give you a launch failure. Have you done any launch failures in these? And I said, yeah, one or two, <laughs> meaning really sort of hundreds of them. It turned out I'd got more flights in it than he had, which wasn't surprising. And they checked me out and then he sent me off solo in their K-13. And we were flying in uh, thermals with big buzzards that didn't like us being in their thermals. And they were quite aggressive towards the aircraft. And there were holes in the fabric where they'd attacked the rudder. And they were just oh. covered up with sticky tape. Wow. Yeah. But we flew over the side of Lake Enduro and I looked down and it looked like it was a pink sandy beach. And I said to the guy, what's that down there? He said, just watch, it'll move. And it did. It was just flamingos, flamingos as far as you could see. Oh, um, amazing. Yeah, I, I did my five hours for my Silver Sea out there. I remember I was doing it in the T-21, the side-by-side open cockpit. And it was quite cold, even though it was in Kenya, because we were quite high up. And I spent the whole flight looking for my gloves. I couldn't find them. When I landed, I found them. I'd been sitting on them. <laughs> So did you have to worry about landing out? I mean, when you're in Africa, there has to be all kinds of wild animals out there. Yeah, so was that would. a concern? It certainly was there, but because I was only going to do my five hours duration, you never went out of landing range of the airfield because there was no way you'd want to land out where that was. So yeah. yes, it, it, I think it is still, I don't know if the gliding club's still there, but clearly landing out in that environment is a bit challenging because there's things that might want to eat you. Yeah, the, the other birds being aggressive like that, you know, I never thought about that because I've never run into that, obviously, here in this country. Red-tailed hawks just kind of soar with us, but they don't really bother us. So that must have been really interesting. Well, it was a big old, you know, a fair old thump when they hit the back end of the aircraft. You feel it, and it's a bit unnerving to start with, but then you realize what it is because the glider is usually going to win. It might end up with a hole in it, but 
it's usually going to win. But then we had a massive change in the instructor world in the Air Cadets. In 1986, the uh, government here decided that it was going to change the air cadet fleet of gliders from these old wooden fabric open cockpit gliders to something that you would recognize which is what you would call a grobe 103 we call it a grob yes but it's that they equipped the whole fleet they bought 150 odd of these gliders oh wow that's that's a lot of gliders and put them across the 27 gliding squadrons and then of course for all us guys that uh, have been flying T21s and T31s with a glide angle of about 45 degrees, if you were lucky, you suddenly you're confronted with a grobe with a sort of 1 in 35 to 1 in 40 glide angle, if you're lucky, if it's clean and new and shiny. And it was like going from a penny farthing to a Ferrari. And whilst we were getting similar launch heights we were obviously getting longer in the air and getting further away from the airfield and being able to soar better so the british gliding association and all the associated civilian gliding clubs around the country suddenly saw the air cadets flying what were then state-of-the-art gliders and whatever animosity there was shown between the bga and the atc became less because we were flying something that was more akin to what they were used to and of course then once that happens you think well this is all right i can try this i'll go somewhere else and fly these so we then went and did a a few holidays a few blokes from the uh, gliding school we tried one called Longmind, which is sort of north end of wales that's on the west side of the uk which is a ridge soaring site we flew there for a week. That was fun, but it's quite monotonous going up and down a ridge. And obviously, you've got to make sure you've got enough height to get back on top of it. And the air cadets, having then uh, got a better gliders, we then had an expedition on an annual basis where the air cadets took over a ridge soaring site in Scotland called Port Moak, which is just north of Edinburgh. And uh, if, in theory, it's a wave site so you ping off the launch at a thousand feet on a winch dive at the side of the cliff and then uh, hopefully it was going up and you'd turn left and you just fly up and down the ridge and then jump off that into the wave and get some significant height what's the elevation of the ridges there in scotland i would think that ridge is probably 1500 to 2000 feet above the airfield level okay but it's is facing into the prevailing wind so when it's good it is really good and the sun obviously creates some thermic activity it might not be actually it might not be 1500 feet because by the time you get there off the top of the launch it's about level with you so it's probably a bit lower than that's probably a thousand feet so you were able to to get some lift off of that and then you say go right into the wave yeah um, we did we went into the wave occasionally but you as you well know the weather is very uh, unpredictable and uh, you have to be very lucky to be there the right week when the uh, ridge lift turns into wave lift. Uh, unfortunately, the and I can see the reason why they did it, the Royal Air Force decided to limit the height that one could go to without oxygen, but they set it significantly lower than what the civilians would do. The civilians probably go to about 12,000 feet, albeit... Generally, it's recommended it's 10,000 without oxygen, but they limited it to eight. 
so it, it put the mockers on any possibility of doing any serious height gains but it did teach you how to fly in the wave when it was working so we got better 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 experienced still instructing every weekend and as we got older and more affluent we we went further afield with our holidays gliding holidays and a few of us went to a place in france because we were looking for better weather we went to a place in central france called le blanc which was run by a world champion called uh, brian spreckley and uh, he had gliders that we could rent so we rented a i think it was a mosquito which is 15 meter single seater and it was in france that i did the silver distance to match my the other bit i'd done in africa and, and the height going it's quite funny in france because we had so many launches albeit very few hours uh when i was sent on my silver distance flight i got to the turn point i took the photograph i turned around to come back and then the sky gave up on me and i had to land out oh no uh, I hadn't had many outlandings, but because of the amount of launches that we'd got, landing in a small space, provided you've done all the appropriate pre-landing checks of size, slope, wires, stock, all that sort of stuff, landing in a small space wasn't difficult. And um, I landed in what was obviously quite a small field. I didn't think it was a problem. And I made the telephone calls and... I was entertained by the farmer and his family with the red wine and the cheese and the bread and waited for the lady who happened to come and drive the trailer and pick me up. And we got back quite late at night at the gliding club at LeBlanc and we were sitting around the bar as one does. And she started complaining about the size of the field that I'd landed in for somebody that she thought was inexperienced because it was my silver cross country, effectively my first cross country. And uh, Brian said to her, because he knew of our experience, and he'd had some experience of the Air Cadets in his early years, he said, well, why don't you two have a spot landing competition? So it was agreed we'd have a spot landing competition, and it was agreed that the place that we'd land would be on the airfield, but I think it was marked out with a a bath towel or something like that. And uh, the following morning she came up to me, she said, I've just found out you're one of those Air Cadet instructors. How many landings have you got? I said, oh, about 3,000. <laughs> she, she said, you can land where you like then. <laughs> <laughs> so the competition never happened. Yeah, I guess yeah, it not. Was, it was good fun. So we just carried on instructing and going away. And as and because the weather was never as predictable as you want it to be, and because we'd managed to escape from our wives and girlfriends for a week anyway we came to the conclusion that it didn't really matter where we went if we were going away for a week so we started looking further afield and that's when i found minden in nevada oh yes minden yeah it's a fantastic place and at the time when i first went there in 2000 um i'd got around 7,000 launches by then and uh, i went there and obviously we this is pre 9-11 so getting a faa certificate then was significantly easier than it is now because i don't know if you're aware getting an faa certificate to match your british gliding association certificate or license as you call it is quite a complex process now after 9 11. oh wow um, no i would imagine 
it provided you follow the FAA's uh, guidance and uh, achieve what they want of you and send them the appropriate information, have it verified by the right people. It actually works, but it's just a slow process. So if, if anybody's thinking about going from the UK to fly in America, they need to be thinking about sorting the license out six months before they go. I flew, obviously did my biennials checks or review as you call it strangely the guy sitting in the back had an accent that came from the southwest of england and i thought that's odd i recognize that it turned out that he was an air cadet gliding instructor on a extended holiday and he'd got a job as a faa instructor and he was working at minden so we actually had quite a lot in common oh very cool yeah so i had lots of launches and low hours in that um, week I was there, it changed significantly because I added nine launches or nine flights, all of which will obviously be aerotowed, and I added 30 hours, which was quite a big jump for me. And, uh, and within those 30 hours, I did two 300-kilometer triangles, and I did a gold height, and once uh, I did uh, one aerotow retrieve late at night. Well, that was an experience. I would imagine that the aerotow, yeah, would be quite different. Until then, you were doing a lot of the winch launches, right? Yes, very much so. Most of my flying was winch launching at that stage. I probably only had a, of all, of the thousands of launches. I said I had about 7,000 launches when I first went to Minden in 2000. I probably only had about 100 aerotows. I flew around a, a place called, uh, I can't think of my name is, it's an old mining town south of uh, Minden and I was coming back and I was on the wrong side of the mountain I was on the right side for the sunshine but on the wrong side for the airfield and I, I could sense that I wasn't going to get back but I thought I might as well just get as far north as I can you could see that I was now getting lower than the mountain tops which are 12,000 feet but still hadn't got enough to get over the top of them there was always the possibility I might be able to get all the way up to the north end of them and turn round through Carson City and come back down the other side but uh, it wasn't to be and I landed at a dirt strip I think it was called Rosarchi or something like that it was just literally a, a strip of concrete running east-west in the middle of the, the some farmer's field fortunately your telephone worked and they sent a tug to get me it was a Pawnee which they use a lot out there we propped the wing up on a bit of bush gave it full throttle took the brakes off and on this tiny little strip, we snatched, launched this aerotow and we were heading straight towards the mountains. And the, the sun was going down and we were flying straight into the sun. We're in the shadow of the mountains, you know, and you can't see much. And I said to her, we were talking on the radio, I said, I really can't see much. He said, just follow the rope, keep it in the middle. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and then I realised we were actually going through a gorge in the mountains. We weren't going over them. We were going through them. Oh, wow. We were flying into the sunshine back out on the valley side that's between the mountains and Lake Tahoe. And we were still flying into the sun. And I said to him, I can't see Minden. He said, don't worry. He said, I'll release you when I know that. You, he said, I'll tell you when to, to release when I know you've got enough height to get back. He said, and if you keep flying in the in the direction that we're flying and you'll see the roof of the coffee factory because Starbucks have got a massive coffee factory. It's like a, a soccer field size concrete roof that you can see. It's massive. So uh, he said, when you see that, you'll know where Minden is. And uh, I, I flew back in the sunshine and landed and 
had some more flights fantastic and then of course i came back and spoke to all my mates and said how wonderful minden was and encouraged some other pals to come out so we've done some subsequent visits but mainly social soaring we found that five was a good number because you could rent two two seaters and a single seater and over a period of week you could rotate so you all got to go in the single seater oh yeah save Uh, some money and then get get a different couple different gliders yeah excellent and i've um within one of those trips i've did my 500 out and return 500 kilometer out and return that was an experience i went all the way down to the white mountains i think i think it's called wacoba wacoba peak or something and i was given the, i had never seen anything like it that when the wind's in the prevailing direction you don't actually turn at all you just cruise along at a sensible speed and they've got a radio protocol where you announce your presence height direction and then you hear all these other gliders doing it and you can sort of work out where you are in this string of gliders that's moving north south up this ridge because as it was put to me by Minden's chief instructor if you come face to face and you're both doing 90 knots the collision's going to be a bit ballistic oh yeah not good yeah, but it's good fun though. So I did my 500 and I did my gold height. So what's that? The airspace there is 18,000 feet, I think. Minden have got a, a wave window which they can uh, deploy, I suppose is a good word for it. I think they ring air traffic control and so the wave is above the airfield and they give them this wave box that they can then go up through and the airliners divert around it. And people go there to for, for wave camps and they're they have some fantastic heights. I've done, I, obviously, the wave is generally in the winter, so um, I, I haven't done a winter holiday there yet. I'll do it one day. Then I had so, another remarkable thing that happened because my daughter, by this stage, is 16, and I sent my daughter solo in the Air Cadet gliders because I'd made her join the Air Cadets. Now, that is an experience, sending your own daughter solo. Yeah, quite different, right? Yeah, Definitely. She didn't know her mother was watching in the bushes. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I remember when I was, when my wife and I hadn't been married very long, I bought my wife a gold pendant, which was a glider, and I had no idea that she was going to do this. But when Gemma finished her solo, she presented her with this gold pendant of the glider, which she is quite happy to wear to start the conversation because a lot of gentlemen friends that she's met have always got, wow, you fly gliders. Because it's just not something that you generally find girls doing. Right. How was that flight? How was her solo? It was good. It it was good. It was really the weather wasn't pretty, but it was good. Yeah, it was all nice. All ended well. Nice landing. Nobody could turn around and say, "Oh well, he's only done that because he she's his daughter." No, it. She really was good. So then, I've always tried to add in a bit of gliding to whatever holidays that my wife and I take. So I've ended up flying in places like Cyprus, at a Royal Air Force Soaring Association. That was fun because that was alongside a commercial airport. So you suddenly look out as you're coming down the approach and there'd be a Boeing 737 right next to you. I did an aerobatics course, a sport aerobatics course. I've got to say I wasn't a fan of it when I'd finished. I like aerobatics smooth with some finesse. So simple rolls, shondells loops anything that is nice and impressive when i did i hadn't anticipated this aerobatics course being competition orientated so everything's incredibly violent 
and you're being thrown around the cockpit. And I, I see the reason for it, but it wasn't my cup of tea. But I do like turning it upside down occasionally and finishing the flight off with a nice loop or a roll or whatever. It's good. And it's good to have those skills. So, you know, if you get put in a bad situation, you have a much better idea how to get out of it than someone that didn't go through aerobatic school. That's very true. Yes. Which, as we get further into this little story, will become apparent how useful it's been. Then one of our holidays was the usual thing, going to Florida to do the Disney thing and SeaWorld and all that stuff. And I went to Seminole Glider Port. Yes. What in the name of the guy that ran it? I think he was German, but um, I was sitting there with the because uh, the instructor was happy for me to sit in the back of the K21 we were in because that was my normal seat, so to speak, as an instructor. And he was sitting in the front. And you know the way you guys signal to the tug to take up slack by waggling the rudder. Well, I waggled the rudder and nothing happened. I waggled it again and nothing happened. And I said, why is he not moving? And he said, well, if you just look over my right shoulder and pass the tug, you'll see the reason why. And there was an alligator walking across the airstrip. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so we had to wait for him to get out of the way. And then I was still gliding at Kenley, still doing lots of instructing. So the launch numbers are still rank, racking up. And then we went in 2013, we went to Estrella and Phoenix and flew with Jason Stevens, who is one of your aerobatic champions. Yeah, it's very cool. I think he's been met, mentioned before. He was, I think he was the pilot in one of the Fifty Shades of Grey films. Yes, correct. I flew an interesting glider there. I flew a thing called a Genesis. There aren't many of them about. If you look it up, it uh, looks like a standard 15-metre glider cockpit and wing, but it's got no fuselage. The fin comes out the back of the wing. It's very, very short. I, there was some logic to the way they were built, but it didn't actually work out. I think uh, I think the LS3 or something beat it to the, the till, as it were, so people bought the LS3 rather than that. But we flew a Genesis, and he had a Grob, although it was significantly more worn than the ones we were used to flying with the RAF. When you rolled, it clunked and banged about. You could feel the wings moving when you're sitting in the back seat. And then I had to go in something that you'll be familiar with, a Schweitzer 233. Yep. I had a flight with the 233 yesterday. I seem to recall, and you'll put me right here, that the instructor sits slightly higher behind the student and he looks over the student's shoulders at the student's instruments. Yes, which can be challenging, but yeah, that's how it works. And then I seem to recall most of one of the back windows open and folded down so you could fly it along with your arm hanging out like a truck driver. Yeah, they do that a lot. Get get yeah. some more air moving in, in the cockpit. It's actually kind of nice on a really warm day when you you don't get a lot of altitude. That was fun flying at Phoenix. Unfortunately, it, it didn't actually do what we'd anticipated because when we were looking at going there, we thought we were going to go and rent a grob or something and go and do some cross-country flying. But unfortunately, Jason Stevens' operation at the time didn't have any gliders that were fitted with serviceable radios and he didn't have any trailers that had and got a puncture so that if you actually landed out you would have been a real problem to them to get you back so we did lots of fun local soaring and the two guys i went with uh both achieved their five hours for their silver and their height gains while they were there 
it was really strange though, Chuck, because he said, Jason said, oh, you don't need to wear parachutes here. There's no other aircraft around here. You don't need to wear parachutes. The glider won't break. The only reason <laughs> right. you wear a para- the only reason you wear a parachute is if you hit something else, and there's nothing here to hit. So as long as you know how many gliders are out there, you'll never hit anything else. So my pal and I were flying a grub at about 8,000 feet without parachutes, and we had an air miss with an airliner. Oh, and my God. So close. I went, I did. We don't know if he ever saw us. We only saw him as he was going away, which was rather fortunate, I think. But it was ever so close. Uh, it didn't have any markings on it. It was just plain grey. No markings at all. And uh, we got down and I said to Jason, oh, I thought you said there was no other aircraft around. He said, well, what happened? I said, well, we had an air miss with a, a T-tailed grey jet airliner. He went, oh, Oh, that does happen once a week. I meant to tell you, we don't know what it does. It's part of the government. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I have no idea what it was doing. It was probably moving some people that they didn't want people to know where they were. But, oh, my. Uh, yes. So we put parachutes on again after that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so going back to the air cadet thing, in 2013, I decided to step down from being, as I'd, by that time, I'd achieved the dizzy heights of the commanding officer so in 2013 i announced my intention to step down from being the commanding officer and hand over the reins of the gliding school which by that stage we developed to about 50 staff we were doing 7,000 launches a year as a squadron we were this is only at weekends and five continuous week courses that lined up with school holidays so we were very busy and sending 70 first solos a year, plus all the air experience flights we were doing and the staff training, and I thought, it's time to hand it over to a younger man. So I gave him a year's notice and said I'd step down from being the boss and I'd do one of the other jobs that I'd previously mentioned. In fact, I'd decided I'd become the engineering officer. So we had my massive leaving due, which was well attended. I've got a so fantastic retirement session. And I handed it all over to the new guy. At that stage, I'd done 11,500 launches obviously oh, some wow. cross-country stuff that we'd spoken about. And um, six weeks later, the air cadets decided, well, they didn't decide, the air cadets were forced into a situation where they had to, as they politely put it, pause gliding. In other words, stop gliding. Um, and they found an engineering issue, which isn't worth discussing in this podcast. But they were forced into a situation where they weren't sure of the serviceability of the aircraft that we were all flying. It was a paperwork issue rather than a, anything technical and that they had to stop providing gliding for the air cadets whilst they sorted out the paperwork and checked the aircraft over. Um, unfortunately, they'd outsourced the servicing and uh, the record keeping wasn't what they wanted it to be. And it, it all got a bit political. The end result was the air cadet stopped gliding, and that was in 2014. And it's only just now, 2018, 19, that they've started again um, with a much more limited operation, with a with a lot less aircraft. It happened at the right time for me, Chuck, because I was uh, fully skilled as an instructor. Suddenly, no longer required to spend my time looking after youngsters. And, and 50 staff and I went and offered my skills to the civilian sector I went to another place that uh, was it Nick yeah, Nick Anderson mentioned I went to Lasham which is 
I'm led to believe, the largest gliding facility in Europe. I hesitate to call it a club because it is so big. There's lots of little clubs within it. They call themselves a gliding society in which it encompasses a whole load of, of small clubs. There's some instructors like me that are volunteer instructors that work for Lasham Gliding Society because we like instructing and do that at weekends. Although it is a seven-day-a-week operation, so they do have a lot of guys that are retired that are instructors that go there during the week to teach people. There's a massive amount of gliders there, privately owned gliders, and some of those are obviously flown from there and they don't get involved in the club activities whatsoever. There's syndicated duo discuses and that sort of stuff. So you've got four or five people that own an aircraft and they all are members of the society, so they get the facility of launching it and paying for launching it, but they don't get involved in anything else. They don't get involved in towing gliders back to the launch point or anything like that. They're just there to fly their own aircraft. So you can go into the cafe and there might be a hundred people in it. You might only know two of them. Bit a bit of an odd place, but it works. So uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying flying gliders at Lasham as an instructor who were very keen to have me as an instructor, it would appear because they don't get many people like me that don't spend a lot of their time flying cross-country. And it's opened my eyes to a whole different world of gliding, which I didn't see as within the Air Cadet. So I can go there and fly two or three different types of glider on the same day, and I could be flying students that have an age range there from 14 to 80, whereas in the Air Cadets, the age range is 16 to 20. Well, as you can imagine, when you're walking back down the airfield and you're trying to distract your student from some, uh, shall we say, event in their flight that has put them off a bit, you try and distract them and talk to them about something else other than gliding. Well, if you're talking to a 16-year-old, there's not a lot you can talk to them about apart from education and sport. So when you're flying at Lasham and you're dealing with people from 14 to 80, there's a massive life experience. It's a fantastic place to go and teach people to fly. And a lot of it's done on Aerotow. And the, and the syllabus that I'm teaching has opened my eyes to a whole new element of teaching because we're producing a different result. Whereas the Air Cadets are producing a student that's capable of flying a glider around a solo circuit once. When I did it, it was three launches, but I think the RAF figured out that the accident always happened on the second one, so they reduced it to one. And the uh, the these students that we send solo at Lasham, they are significantly better equipped, shall I say, at the end of when they go solo than an air cadet student is because they are expected to do something different. An air cadet student would be expected to go to the top of his winch launch, fly a 10-minute circuit and land. And you'd know where he's going to be the whole time because you've taught him what the circuit's going to be. Whereas in the British Gliding Association world, you, you, if you're competent, then you're sent on your faux solo. If you go flying into a thermal, there's really no reason why you don't go off and go soaring. And inevitably, you're going to get blown downwind. So you, you've got to be able to rejoin the circuit and come back to high key point at an appropriate height and position and sort out the circuit from there. You might end up doing half hour on your first solo if the weather's right. And... You get to do things that I wouldn't have done within the air cadets, like converting people from single uh, from uh, two seat gliders to single seat gliders and all that sort of stuff. 
as an instructor, I have a question for you. What was one of your biggest challenge when you were teaching a new student? As a personal challenge, I think the biggest issue you've got is learning where you are comfortable with being able to recover the glider to safe flight, having allowed the student to make a mistake. Because if you're a nervous instructor and you don't allow the student to make mistakes, the student doesn't learn. Well, they learn, but not as quickly and as not as well. But clearly, you've got to be capable of resolving the situation before it damages people and things. So obviously, when you're teaching somebody to land, you do it in steps because you want to make sure that that there's no point in you sitting holding the controls in the back whilst they're trying to land it because they'll feel it. You need them to feel the aircraft as it is without you touching it. So you've got to make sure that you you're 100% confident that you can recover from where they put the aircraft and don't allow them to get the aircraft into a position from which you can't recover and that you're willing to allow them to make a mistake. That's the personal challenge. Finding when you need to take over safely and get the aircraft back in order. Yeah, definitely. But as I said, the big thrill, of course, being an instructor is sending that solo. really is. And flying at Lasham, they... Without a shadow of a doubt, the students and the pilots have to be significantly more aware of the situational awareness and airspace around them than the air cadets do at Kenley, where I was. At Kenley, we had seven gliders. So if you were in one and could count to six, you knew where the others were. But at Lasham, they have such a vast amount of gliders taking off that you could be in a thermal. I think the biggest thermal I've been in in the last four or five years I've been there, has got I counted about 20 gliders in it. Oh, yeah. And, this, wow. and it all gets a bit busy. Unfortunately, a lot of the youngsters that fly gliders these days have so much IT kit in the aircraft, they spend more time with their head inside the office than they do looking out the window. And they're yeah, relying that's... on things like Flam and that sort of stuff. Well, I, I pride myself on being able to see it before Flam tells me where it is. Yeah, that is uh, becoming an issue with people keeping like you said keeping their heads outside rather than inside they have so many gadgets in the cockpit that yeah there's reasons for them but you got to be looking outside the airplane and not depend on something inside because you need to know where that traffic is around you yeah and i that something did happen to me that was quite comical because i said my old man my dad uh, flew sea fires during the war he was a very difficult man to impress he's passed away now years ago but when we had a family's day in the air cadets, I took him for a flight in the Grobe 103. And uh, he, he must have been in his 70s or 80s, somewhere there. And I, we got out and he shook my hand because he was never sort of an affectionate guy. He said, that was all right, son. I said, so what do you think? Then? He said, well, it's quiet. I said, well, it would be a bit quieter than sitting behind a Merlin. And he said, yeah, he said, do uh, the nose is in a different place in relation to the horizon. I said, yes, well, we have to go downhill all the time. We have to go downhill because that's our power. But yeah, he said, oh, and there's one other thing. He said, when you get back, the runway's where you left it, and it's not going up and down. <laughs> As I said, he was a difficult man to impress. Yeah. So 2017, I went on a club expedition to the Pyrenees. That's that range of mountain that's between Spain and France. And uh, that was with a, with Lasham. They take over a 
some gliding on a little airfield there called Hacker. It's spelt with a J, but it's said hacker i had a fantastic experience with wildlife there i was flying with an instructor there and we said he said look up i just happened to look up and we were in the thermal and way above us just under the cloud was what could best be described as a squadron of cranes you know those very long necked birds with the big square rectangular wing shape they were migrating from south to north i guess oh but wow. there was there must have been 30 or 40 of them all in the same thermal above us such a fantastic sight yeah. and then 2017 i went back to minden for another social soaring we stayed in an airbnb in in minden fantastic place i don't think they're allowed to do airbnbs in nevada anymore there's been some local government thing to stop them doing it but the guy next door was a hot air balloon instructor and we were sitting on the deck one night drinking wine and he said i'll take you for a ride in a hot air balloon if you like so we said, oh, we'll have some of that. And uh, I said, so be early in the morning, of course, because it's obviously needed to be cool. He went, yes. Yeah. So, so where are we going to take off? Bear in mind, we're in the middle of a housing estate, Chuck, called Johnson Lane. And we're oh, in this my. housing estate. Huge plots, but we're in a big housing estate. And uh, he said, oh, we'll take off behind the fire station. I said, won't the fire marshal get the hump? He said, I am the fire marshal. <laughs> So we went flying with a guy called Mr. Anderson. I remember what his first name was. We had a fantastic flight and we spent the whole... He was teaching his student spot landing. I never realised they had that much control about where they planted a hot air balloon. And we were bouncing from garden to garden around this housing estate and saying good morning to the people as we woke them up as they were doing their eggs sunny side up and waving to us out the window. It was a superb day, yeah, that was. And then we went back to Minden and did some gliding, of course. Although the weather wasn't that special that week. Most of it was local soaring, but we'd had quite a few good sessions. Also, doing the, the private gliding at uh, Lasham has allowed me to do something that I could never have done in the Air Cadets, which is to fly my friends. Because to fly in the Air Cadets, you had to, it either had to be a friends and family day, which would happen sort of once every couple of years, or they had to be part of the air cadet organization so you couldn't fly people that weren't part of the organization or the RAF. so flying at lashams allowed me to take my pals gliding and they can now see what i've been doing for all these many years and that's nice and uh one of my pals coincidentally my wife and i had been on a sailing holiday and i think sailing yachts is pretty much akin to gliding it's just 90 degrees out and um we did our day skipper qualifications in and some fairly benign conditions in Greece and uh, we were going to rent a yacht but I didn't feel comfortable with renting a yacht my just my wife and I because knowing the weather as I do I know how difficult it can get very quickly and my pal Ian said to me well I'll teach you to sail he said I've been sailing since I was a child and he's a similar age to me so he said I'm going to buy a yacht and uh, sail around the UK and uh, that's exactly what he did do because he's fortunate enough to be able to do that sort of thing and uh, we we sailed around the uk and i did about three large sectors of that with him and i found out that actually i'm not that keen on sailing four seven winds with it raining and blowing a gale and but at least i i got an understanding of what sailing can be like 
and felt a lot more comfortable so the next time we went and rented a yacht my wife and I would be safe so having taught him he's taught me to sail he said to me over a couple of beers one night said can you teach me to glide I said well can do if you want to do it so he joined Lasham Gliding Society and I gave him a uh, intensive weeks gliding course and uh, on the Friday morning I was just about to send him solo when he'd done about 38 launches by that stage and uh, the chief instructor said we can't do any more winch launching today guys because there's going to be a couple of jet movements because I failed to mention at Lasham the airspace is quite busy because there's a a commercial operation that does maintenance on jet airliners for small airlines so you get the occasional Boeing 737 come and land and what have you will if they all turn up on the same day it can put pay to cable launching because they don't want cables laying around the airfield whilst there's big jets on the on the approach so the chief instructor said we cut you'll have to do aerotows and I thought well there's no way I'm going to get a conversion from winch launching to aerotow and send him solo today and he lives in Guernsey so he, he never actually went solo although he was I would say probably four launches away from going solo and then uh, at my 60th birthday last year he said to me I've decided what I'm giving you for your birthday so we're going to go on a gliding holiday together take me to Minden oh so, very nice yes yeah, so next well next August month after next we're going back to Minden for a week of social soaring which will be fun I gotta get down that way yeah it's not cheap I have to say but if you save up for it and you're almost guaranteed the weather it's worth it especially if you're like me. So as of last weekend, I'd got 12,500 launches and 1,200 hours. Um, wow. And just recently, I've got found myself in a position where I could pay for a flight in a Spitfire. I thought, I'm going to go and find out what Dad's flying, what, or what it was really like, what Dad did. So I went and had a flight in a Spitfire from a World War II Air Force base. And uh, we went and flew down to the south coast and flew over the fighter pilot memorial at Cape Laferne and did a barrel roll there and went and put Dover port in the gun site and then came back and did some more barrel rolls and loops over the airfield. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, wow. What amazing experience. Yeah. So that now it's back to gliding again, back to teaching, looking forward to uh, flying on in August. I've just rented a K-21 for the week for the for the day on next sunday and i've invited a few pals down i can have them on a sort of day friend membership thing and uh we're going to go and do a few launches with those guys so they can get a day out i'll just have the glider to myself for the day that's my story keith i i have to ask you because i like to ask everyone but especially you as an instructor what would you tell someone that's interested in learning how to soar if you've got a hankering for it, do it because it's, especially if you join a club environment, it's one of the cheaper ways of learning to fly. It's the purest form of, of flying. If you've got coordination skills, then you will obviously be find it easier. If you struggle with coordination, it might be an issue. But if you're medically fit, good coordination and you're hungry to learn, go and do it, because there is nothing better, nothing better than being in a thermal, going out at 500 feet a minute, and you've got no engine, and 
you're just looking at the birds that come to join you and then they show you how to do it properly and they disappear and they can go up a lot quicker than you. It's, and if you progress, you can either progress as a glider pilot that, that continues to go gliding and, and maybe join a club and get a syndicate share in a, in a glider and over the years as they become better at it, get a better glider, or they could become an instructor and do more instructing like I've done, or they might even end up joining, getting a job in the commercial aviation world. It's a fantastic grounding for flying. Any glider pilot, and it might be a bit controversial to say this, but any glider pilot that's been solo will make initially make a better powered pilot than the powered pilot trying to do it the other way around. Thank you, Keith, for being here today and sharing your story. And thank you for listening to another aviation adventure here on Soaring the Sky. We hope you check out our other episodes and check out our guest pilot page for more information and pictures of Keith you can find there as well as other guests we've had on the podcast. SoaringTheSky.com, that's where you find that. And on social media, you can also find us on Instagram under Soaring the Sky Podcast as well as Facebook, Soaring the Sky Podcast. We've also added some YouTube links that Keith wanted to share with you as well on the show notes. Look for that. And this year, look for us at Oshkosh. We hope to see you there. We'll be hanging out there with the SSA. You can find info all about the SSA and how they can help you get your first glider ride at ssa.org. We hope you join us next time for another episode right here on Soaring the Skies.